You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Thomas Kalmar. Well, good morning, Antonio. You mentioned something about being a Quaker. You know, it takes me half an hour drive from home to this studio for these conversations that we have. And I've noticed that on the way down, just sort of meditating, mildly musing, something comes up in my heart, and then that sometimes is what we end up talking about, or, or at least start talking about. Sometimes you have something. I gather that you looked at my Facebook page again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
And you seem to be surprised at the variety of stuff that I posted. Tons of wonderful stuff. Well, that's because you're a Facebook virgin and don't have much <laughs> experience with Facebook. And once you got me talking about all of that, what it means to me. But I must say, in the last couple of months, I've eased up on my Facebook life because I have a real life now. In the last couple of months? Yes. Really? Because yes. the last time I checked was about a week or two ago. <laughs> I, I, I admit, I, I did go back in, in Facebook oh, time. Oh, good, good. So I, I looked at a lot of your posts. Yes, I'm sure you had a lot of fun. And I did. I had a blast. What, what, what was the sort of the overall tone of, your, of what you saw there? Just a wild assortment of fun, wacky entertaining, funny, humorous, provocative, but mainly just wondrous stuff. Sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you could say that we see a, a reflection of ourselves all around No, I don't us. mean that. I mean that you and me have something in common. Oh, okay. uh, and that, um, <laughs> well, yes, I did. I think I said know, you, something. You, people I, could say, well, I, I just listened to your collage again. It's a wild and wacky and all those things you said. It's <laughs> yes. Well, I think I, I sent you an email after perusing your Facebook history back a ways. And I think I said that it reminds me a lot of my show. Yes, I think so. And uh, on, on the flip side is, I don't listen to radio. I mean, it's embarrassing to admit this. <laughs> Thanks to you, I've started listening to radio a little bit. And the other day I was at uh, Rite Aid in Hardwick and I happened to be able to hear WGDH, isn't it, in Hardwick? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Tony o. Epstein. Me? Interviewing someone. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had the flip side of that experience where I got a little bit more taste of what it would be like to actually listen to radio. But let's move forward. What came to me this time had to do with this thing about why am I a Quaker? What does it mean for me to be a Quaker? And what's it mean in my life? How did I become one? And what, right. you know, what, what, what is Quakerism and so on? But I was also thinking about the Workers' Educational Association, the WEA. And I was aware that on the times that you and me have been having these sessions, these dialogues, you have this tendency to try to draw me out to talk about myself and my life. And for some reason, which I don't feel like analysing, I kind of, you know, resisted that a little bit. But I'm feeling a little different now, and if you're willing to give it a try, I need to talk about the WEA in Australia, the Workers' Educational Association, when I was a teenager in Australia and what it meant to me, and move into the, how I became a Quaker or something of that sort. What's that sound like to you? Well, that's what I usually do with my guests. I, I think so. I usually try to peruse their, their history, their background. Yes, who they are. Who they are right. and what made them tick throughout the years. Right, that's what I... And how they got here. Right, that's what I got from listening to you talk to someone other than me. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I think and talk, as I have many, many times, of course, about my experience of Australia, I tend to be very negative about it. I arrived in Australia in 1948. I was a little Mexican kid, six years old. And now I understand what a huge change it was to go from a, one culture to a totally different culture. And Australia in 1948 is not what Australia is today. And so then I came of age in Australia. It was the 50s, and it was my adolescence, but still Australia was a dismal, woebegone country in my experience, and it was a wonderful thing to escape from it and come to the United States. In 1961, I think, I went to UC Berkeley and felt liberated. But now I'm getting older and older, and these periods of my life, which I tend to bury in some dark place and not think about, 
are coming back, but no longer drenched in pain and blood and so on. They're just, oh, that's what that was about. And the very pleasant thing is that they sort of emerge in a more neutral and, in this case, I guess one could say more positive way. Um, I'm sure that has to do with the aging process. Not that I'm... Not that I have any intention of aging gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> I have the same experience. I, I say even, more. I, I even reflect on relationships that were deeply traumatic and even psychotic. Yes, yes. And now, when I reflect back on it, I, I reflect back with affection and appreciation. Yes. yes. First is acceptance, isn't it? That, yes. that did happen. And now, instead of saying, and all these people do these horrible things to me, I feel like... And or, or alternately, why didn't I see the light? Why didn't I understand what could have happened? Why was I so blind to the possibilities at the time? Regret, you know, instead of those kinds of feelings, it's hard to find the words for it, but it was like more what you were saying, you said affection. Firstly, it's, yes, that is what happened, but not resignation in the sense of... Anyway, it's, it's, it's happening to me now with uh, the realisation that throughout the 1950s, my family, my, my mother, my father my older brother and my younger sister and me, we were quite a family. We were very engaged in the life of the WEA. <laughs> now, the WEA is short for Workers' Educational Association. Years later, I understood this was something that was started by socialists in England. It's still going. Adult education for the labor movement. And this, the basic underlying truth was working-class people have intellects and can think for themselves. It's not that everybody involved in the WA was from the trade unions. There were middle class people too. Though in Australia, class was a different thing, especially in the 50s. I'm not denying that there were some, you know, middle class kind of things going on. But Australia, after all, was only founded, it only started the white Australia. And I'm talking about very white Australia. It was all lily white when I was there. And uh, when people hear me say it was lily white, they say, no, 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 the Aborigines. But the truth is, that's what it looks like from here. Yeah, the indigenous people in Australia were obliterated like they were in other countries. But when one grew up in Sydney in the 50s, they were invisible. And so I was this funny-looking little foreign bloke, and so was my brother. And there was no Hispanic community. They were, they were immigrants, but they were all white. In fact, the family story is when we arrived at the airport... In 1948, they almost didn't let us in. And we were detained there for 48 hours. And my mother says it was her green eyes that got us in. <laughs> That's what she used to say. So there was this... Yes, yes, there was racism, but not the, what, the way it is in the United States. The racism was so different when everyone is white. <laughs> I see, there is the pain, of course. Yes, so, so the WEA ran adult education in a way that is so sensible... And that shaped all my educational experience ever since and my idea of what an educator does. Especially when I got to Goddard and it was, oh, this is the WEA all over again. You formed discussion groups. So we would meet in each other's homes every week. A box of books came from the university extension. This is socialist education, man. You read the books, and each time a different person guided the discussion. Mm. And there was a little booklet, How to Guide a Discussion. So looking back, it was a normal and natural thing for me as I was a teenager and started joining in. Well, yeah, right from the start. 
It was a normal and natural thing that anyone could learn about group dynamics and guide a discussion. It was very well done, really. And then you had various, you know, questions, and the group would come to some resolution of some sort and write it all up and send it off to the tutor. I think it must have been every second week. Maybe even once a month. Maybe it varied from whatever you were studying. And so the tutor would read the report and write back. It was like a packet, you know, <laughs> as we call them in Goddard. But that tutor wouldn't be present at these no, discussions. No, they no, were, they, they were doing this for... Australia's very dispersed. These boxes would go all over Bulimer, Canker, and out, you know, back of beyond. It was most enjoyable. And many of the groups that ran were studying politics and economics and sociology and social, what we call social stuff, social sciences. But it was done without hierarchies. Oh, absolutely. Groups. No hierarchies, no. So did that, did that make learning more enjoyable and easier? Than what? Like when you're a child in school and you're sitting in front of a teacher who's dictating Every, you know, everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and punishing the answer to your question and rewarding. Is, yes, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> but it, I didn't experience it that way, Tonio. Okay. There was no reason for me to consciously compare this with what was going on in school, which was a horrendous experience for me, except for two wonderful years where the classes were much more like uh, the W. No, I don't think I experienced it more like, not that this was how we learned or that this was a pedagogical method, but this is what sensible people, adults, do. There's a problem, you diagnose the problem and you come up with a solution and then you implement the solution and then you get back together and you you see whether it's solved the problem or not. So it wasn't even like you were engaged in education. You It was more, more of an organic part of life? Well, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, very thank which you. Is, thank which you. is the way education really should be, considering that... Which is the only kind of education that actually ever happens. All right. the other stuff is called education, but it isn't education. It's something else. And it else. tends to go in one ear and out the other. You're lucky if it even goes one ear. I mean, <laughs> uh, right. if it goes in one ear, right. let it go out as quick as possible out the other, but better still, don't even let it in. Right. Although it's really hard to keep all that crap out. It is if you don't have the WEA at home and if you don't have a family like mine. But every day I would come home from school and describe at the dinner table something that had happened and people would draw me out on how I had coped with it and train me on what to do next time something like that happened. <laughs> so this is helpful, very, very helpful to be talking to you about this because... I would, yes. You know, sorry to interrupt you, but... I would love to hear an example of something that happened to you in school that you, can't, that you brought home and, and told your parents about and, and that they advised you how to deal with. Well, I'll give you the most egregious example. I mean, there was, that, that sounds perfect. <laughs> yes. I'll give you two examples. Okay. It may not be an example of exactly what I was describing, but it'll give you the tone. Mm -hmm. I was then a Mexican citizen. I'm still a Mexican citizen. I never became an Australian citizen. The day came when I had to renew my Mexican passport. Now, there was no Mexican embassy in Australia. In those days, there was only you know, five Mexicans in Australia, us. <laughs> uh, I did meet a Spaniard while I was there. My Spanish was getting pretty fossilized. But there was somebody who was a consul, a Mexican consul in downtown Sydney, and he could stamp your passport and renew it. But he could only see me before 3 o'clock and school closed at 3, North Sydney Boys High School. I'll now probably end up telling the story in Australian because, you know, that's the way it happened. Mm -hmm. So I had to pick... On Tuesday, I had to leave school, you know, about an hour early so that I could get to this guy and get my passport renewed. 
And my parents probably said something like, you know, should we write a note? And I said, no, there's no need. I said, the last period is just library and nothing happens in library. I didn't tell them, but, you know, the main thing that happened was that some guys would be jerking off into one of the uh, books and sticking the pages together. <laughs> um, but I liked that library. I still have a book from that library. I liked all libraries. It wasn't easy to like that one, but I still have a book that was due back, you know, in 1957, and I've never taken it back. It's a beautiful book about geometry. So I was just going to leave without worrying about that, and so off I went. And as I got out off the train at Wynyard, I happened to see there the French teacher. Now, the French teacher was a noted sadist. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed to enjoy holding boys out the window by the scruff of their necks, a second-floor window. And he punished you if you were caught misbehaving in class, anything counted as misbehaviour, by making you do ten sit-ups in front of the class or something like that. And he saw me, and I greeted him, and, he, and we greeted each other. And I went and got my passport. Then the next day came the usual thing over the loudspeaker system. Well, the following boys report to the, the deputy headmaster. The headmaster of the school was a man called Mr Mason. He was the eldest of 20 kids. He'd had a long career, and he did nothing but sit in his front office there reading comic books that he had confiscated off the students. He didn't really run the school. The school was run by this other man, Mr Carnegie. Carnal, we called him. And so I was summoned to his office, where I was told that I had been caught leaving the school without permission. I'd been reported by the French teacher and that he was there to punish me by caning me six times. Now, until this point, I had never been punished in that school. Everyone else, you know, had all these punishments they had to go through. Yeah, but I was such a sissy and such a coward. I dreaded... And I'm a pianist. I don't want someone hitting my hand with a stick. So I explained to him that, no, I hadn't done anything wrong. I had to get my Mexican passport renewed and that the consul could only see me before three o'clock. No, he was not going to make an exception for my case. No. If we you know, make an exception for your case, we would have to do it for everybody. I said, I think if anybody else needs to have their Mexican passport renewed, they too should be not punished. <laughs> <laughs> Giving you the flavour? Yes. <laughs> he insisted that I was uh, not going to get away with this and made me put my hand out. Now, I don't know why I put my hand out. I put my hand out and said to him, Go ahead and cane me, but this does not prove that you were right and that I am wrong. <laughs> Which he did, he caned me, and then, you know, I guess I'm pretty proud of that moment. So then, of course, when I got home, I told, you know, the family exactly what had happened. I don't remember if they gave me any advice or said, you know, but that was to give you the flavour of how I did not think of school as the model for what education should be and the WA as an alternative. No. But another example comes up, and you will guide me for how long to tell these stories. At the end of fifth year, fifth year was the final year. Well, you year. realize that the time that you take to tell these stories is time that is taken away from your break. <laughs> Baloney. <laughs> you can cane it, but it won't prove that you're right and I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, the time that I tell these stories earns me the right to have a break. I'm glad we cleared that up. So the last year of school, fifth year, senior year in Australia, um, I had dropped out of school in fourth year, the second last year, and I was taking music as a subject. 
it wasn't illegal, but it was understood that only girls took music as a subject for the leaving certificate, which is the exam that everybody in the state had to take. But I, with my mother's help, we insisted that I be allowed to take music as a subject, and every week I went to classical piano lessons with a t- top-notch classical pianist. So in fifth year, traditionally on the last day of school, there was what we called the fifth-year riot. The kids who were leaving went kablooey, and there was long memories for, you know, oh, that was a good year, they did such and such. Two years before my final year, they had come up with a brilliant idea of sandbagging the second-floor corridor and flooding it and rowing a rowboat up and down the second-floor corridor. (laughs) And they had taken the French teacher, whom I mentioned before, they had taken his Porsche, maybe it wasn't a Porsche, some beautiful car, and managed to lift it up and wedge it between two telegraph poles so that it couldn't be pulled in and out, and poured Coca-Cola into the gas tank. So that was a good revolution that year. I, um, as the date approached for the end, there was something in the newspapers about how the school was going to make sure that this year boys would behave themselves, even though it was the last day. I wrote a letter, which I still have it in my files, I wrote a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald pointing out that the only teachers who were treated like this were the ones who had no respect for the students and that you can't demand respect, you have to earn it. got published. The deputy headmaster made us take home a letter to our parents. The parents had to sign guaranteeing the good behaviour of their sons on the last day. My father didn't play much role in my education, but he was pretty pissed off about this. He wrote back to the principal saying, you may have the authority to, you know, boss the children around, but you have no authority to tell parents what to do. I don't want you to think that he was some sort of militant radical, but he was a very ethical person and very much a socialist. He said, if I could guarantee my son's behavior, signing this would make no difference. And if I can't, signing it is not going to make any difference. Basically, you know, bugger off. (laughs) So I felt supported there. Um, I may as well tell you more about that year. I had returned, I took a half a year off in fourth year, And when I returned, because I was determined to return, I was just studying at home. I'd done so much math that I'd already done, taught myself calculus, and there was no more math to learn in school. And Anyway, I came back, and the teachers were very divided about what to do about Tom Kalmar. That was my name back then. Some were very much on my side, and some were very, very much against me. The one who was most on my side was my old Latin teacher, Mr. Cook, who would say, all adjectives take the superlative in Isimus. There are only six exceptions which are easy to remember. Similar and dissimilar, similis and dissimilis, easy and difficult, faculis and difficulis, and the last two can be remembered in reference to me, slender and humble. He was a wonderful teacher, and once in an assembly, he came up to me and whispered in my ear, Kalmar, when you're Prime Minister of Australia, you will remember your old Latin teacher, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, the English teacher would not have me in his classroom, Mr. Bottomley. And so instead of being in 5A, there was 5A, 5B, 5C, 5D, 5E and 5F. They were like, uh, it wasn't a huge high school compared to American high schools. There was about 150 students in that final year, divided 
into 4A with the top students and 4F, whatever else, with the bottom students. I was put into 4B, even though I had you know, wonderful grades in English and so on. But in other classes, I don't remember which, I was put into the lowest grade. So I was hanging out. And though this was North Sydney Boys High, this was not the toughest kids in Sydney, but these were the toughest kids at North Sydney Boys High, probably the most working-class kids. And they would sit at the back of the room and smoke, and the teacher wouldn't bother them, and, you know... And I hung out with them and found out that they were much more fun to be with. I hadn't remembered this aspect of it, but I could say that's when uh, my affinity with the oppressed, with the lower classes in society became clear to me. Anyway, I got three friends together and the four of us met and we organised the entire fifth year. There had never been much of this. Each stratum, I guess in America they'd be called cliques, did not connect with the others. But I had every class was to choose or elect a class representative and so the eight class representatives and me and maybe a couple of other people met to plan a terrific final riot. Shall I go on with what we did? Absolutely. This doesn't seem much to have to do with either the WA or Quakers, but I don't know. But it has care. everything to do with how I became who I am and who with, I was back with then. With the story right now. <laughs> right, and with who I am and was from yeah. long ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So we decided that the best thing to do was everyone should contribute sixpence, a nickel. And everyone did. The entire 150 students. So we had funds. And we did things with this money. One thing is we printed out little squares of paper with a message on them that said, we've had our fill. Fill was the nickname for Phil Carnegie, the aforesaid deputy headmaster. We've had our fill. This was very outrageous that we would dare to print such a thing. And they had a sticky on the back. We had to find a, you know, a printer to do this. And these were distributed to every boy with strict instructions to not put them up until 11 a.m. And on the dot at 11 a.m., plaster the school with these. <laughs> so at the same time, we also put an ad in the paper, old building for sale, suitable for prison or mental asylum or something like that <laughs> call and we gave Phil Carnegie's number <laughs> and uh, actually Australians are very good at these kind of pranks there's a few more Australian stories I could tell you about that sort of thing I probably will end up telling them to you and for me the, the most amazing thing was we bought four roosters four old roosters mean looking things we had to go out to Liverpool to get them in a car and Peter McCloy and me and two other guys these were you understand some of the brainy kids and some of the tough kids went out and got them and we we're going to break into the school in the middle of the night and put one in each of four rooms I was going to leave the window open in the library to make sure you know but, but Peter McCloy had some implement some tool which you did this to it and the door opened <laughs> uh, jimmy is that what it is yeah. he was skilled at that <laughs> <laughs> how wonderful to uh, to organize the smart kids why and the working wonderful. class kids this is why well. it's wonderful to tell the story yes. and this does go back to the wea 
The thing with the roosters was a lot of fun, but actually the janitor found them in the morning and so there was no... A poor guy had to do something with them, you know. We had envisioned the teacher coming in and seeing these roosters and what mayhem it would cause. And uh, and all, all through the morning, Phil Carnegie was answering the phone saying, it's been sold. <laughs> 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 but at 11 o'clock, there was... Those things got plastered on the ceilings, on everywhere, all over the school. I wouldn't be surprised if there's still some left in some nook up, you know, near near the corner of a ceiling. So that was solidarity. But you touched on something that I've taken for granted, but actually is key. Key to both the Quakerism and the real socialism. In the WEA, naturally, when you had these discussion groups, there'd be seven or eight people, maybe six sometimes. One, one I remember that I, that I ended up going to, even though I was young, was about chamber music. And there was literature, you know, it was all, all, all sorts of topics you could choose. But in addition to that, three times a year, we all went to Newport, where there was a building that the WA owned, and we would all sleep in, you know, cabins and cook food for one another. And there'd be a week by Newport Beach of... Uh, Morning, afternoon and evenings, discussions and you know, a wonderful experience. And you would be washing the dishes for one another and all of that. Community, a communal kind of thing. And there, though again it was all seemed natural and we took it for granted, there was of course that mixture of working class and middle class. There were intellectuals from the university and intellectuals who were not at the university. Artists, maybe. Writers. And definitely, you know, working-class workers, I mean, workers who wanted an intellectual life. And it was a very rich mix in that way. So, yes, this did not turn out to be an example where I come home and tell my parents such and such happened, what do you think I should do? But it gives you the flavor of... And it's been so interesting to have you compare and contrast this kind of education with the other kind of education. Because I'll just fast forward to when I met Paolo Freire. Does the name Paolo Freire mean anything to you? I haven't read his Have work, but I, I've heard numerous people around here reference him. Yes, yes. He's, not, he's not totally gone, but in his day when he was alive there was a huge cult around him. Pedagogy of the oppressed. Literacy campaigns that liberate the oppressed. How to teach literacy to the oppressed. I became such an expert on Freire because after all I already was before I met him. Just from your own personal from experience. This, yeah, from, this, from this experience. Yeah. And this is part of what I'm hoping to get to today, so I'll just blurt it out right now. Over the years, I've found that there are other WEAs with a different name. There were some in, in the United States, and that Goddard was very much in that tradition in the 1930s, and especially in the 1930s, and that whenever I'm in such a setting, it's very comfortable. But also, you know... When I was such an active Christian in Australia in 1974, as a Quaker, Marxist Christian dialogue it was called, liberation theology. It was the same thing, and, and that's when Paulo Freire came to Australia, and when I was his interpreter and how I met him. It was the same thing, you would have retreats and work out what do good Christians, what are they called to do to undo the injustice where the third world is oppressed and the first world is too rich? And Paulo Freire, the gist of it... Well, let me say this. His book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, has this word in it, conscientization. And there was a time when you could get your PhD by claiming that you understood what the word meant. <laughs> the translation of that book into English was not well done. All the words like narrar, which is to tell, became narrate, 
And so there's all these Latinate words in the translation. So there's a bit of something unnecessarily obscure and occult about what he was saying. And what he's saying basically is, if you're an activist and never stop to reflect, your activism is not going to change the oppressive structures of society. You will feel better. But if you don't take stock and see what changed, you may be making things worse or not, not doing anything. And if you're, the, using my terminology, if you're a contemplative and like sitting around talking about things and find out what the solution is, but don't implement it, well, then you're just, you know, spiritual, but you're not changing the expressive structures of society. And so you have to have this dialectic back and forth between theory and praxis. You take action, and then the group takes action, not a person, not an individual. It can be a small group, but there's a group that takes action. It can be a large group. And then you get together and reflect on what you learned from that and why it didn't work out the way you wanted it to work out. And so you take action again based on the improved theory. This is very akin to John Dewey, really. This is very akin to... Variations of this have always been around with the notion that adults are quite capable of solving their problems if only they can find a room in which they can be free to talk to one another. And that's the key, yes. talking to one another. The freedom to listen and talk to one another and say what you mean and be to open. Cross, and to cross borders, not to s stay isolated in one's own social that, cliques. Well, yeah, but I found that the room one needs is best if it's a neutral space. Exactly. Not owned by either side. Or right. Not by anyway, There may not even be sides. Exactly. There may not even be sides. Okay, this has been a very rich experience, as always, to tell you all of this about my experience. Now, the WEA has sort of come back into my awareness in the last few days for the most surprising reason. I've been reading novels again. It's been, it took a, for years now. I don't get much pleasure from reading novels, but I find some. And I've been reading the novels of Christina Stead. Now, she's not unknown. Her best-known book is The Man Who Loved Children, which is said to be a very fine book. But she wrote quite a few novels, and she was born in Australia in 1902, left in 1928, went to England, had a wild career, ended up in Paris, New York, and wrote very surprising novels. Only the first one, which I'm now reading, called Seven Poor Men of Sydney, have anything to do with Australia. The first one I read was called House of All Nations. It was a big, fat thing. It was set in Paris in 1931. It was written in the 30s. And the characters in it are all these scheming bankers, <laughs> a private bank, and all about the schemes they have to try and make money while the stock market crashes. You'd think it would be kind of boring in a way, but the dialogues and the conversations, and she certainly knows how they talk to one another. I've never read Balzac, but I think it's that sort of thing. Anyway, it was a very surprising book. Now I'm reading this one that's from Sydney in the 20s. And the Australia I knew in the 1950s was dead, but the Sydney that she describes in the 20s was full of life. These working-class people having arguments with one another. One of them is a communist trying to tell people, you know, communism is the answer. One of them's an artist. I mean, it's a very odd book. And there are places mentioned, like Lane Cove River, where my brother and me used to row a boat once in a blue moon. My brother went there a lot. And Wollstonecraft at, at the station. I mean, these places. Now, Tonya, when, you, when I read Iris Murdoch, a novel set in London, I've read a lot of Iris Murdoch, and they say Knightsbridge or St. John's would Hyde Park. I have a dim understanding of the connotations. And if it's a novel set in New York and they say the Upper West Side, okay, you know. 
But I'm aware that people who actually live there understand what she's getting at when she says, you know, went down Tottenham Court Road and turned left onto Regent Street. Well, in this book, these were places that, you know, were totally oriented. And it was a fun experience because it gave me the feeling what it must be like to be a New Yorker, reading a book in New York, or a Londoner, reading a book in London. And I don't think I've often had that experience because this was my childhood, you know, places I knew. Oh, it was, that part was fun. And then so I turned the page and then these... The characters go to a meeting at the WEA at the Book of Education Association. Oh, that would brought back all sorts of memories. One more little detail. I first heard about Christina said in these WEA sessions because our family had famous parties. That every month or so, the house would be full of people drinking sherry and chatting. And the head of the steelworkers union was a close friend, Laurie Short. And his wife, Nancy, was a painter, an artist. And one of the close family friends was Ron Gearing. He was professor of English literature. He was very keen on Joyce Carey, which otherwise I wouldn't have read. And in later years, I read a lot of Joyce Carey, thinking of Ron Gearing. I remember him very vividly. And he was very keen on Christina Stead, which nobody heard of in those days. Nobody read her, nobody knew about her. So I started to Google. And in 1976, after I'd left Australia for the last time, it turned out he had published a book on Christina Stead. So I got the book. And then it turned out that when she, that he became friends with her because she went back to Australia, and that he was her literary executor. So yeah, I have a connection here, and so I read it in a different way than if I didn't know, you know, that I used to know when I was a teenager. And, it, you know, it was a nice, nice kind of feeling about that. So do we have any need to draw a moral from the story? I don't think so, unless you have one. No, just the same one that always happens when I chat to you, that, that it's so therapeutic to be here. Mm. You have this ability to let a person just be whoever they are, and I've no idea why I would ever have been shy to tell these stories in such detail. But certainly to tell the story... It's a lot like getting in, into those neutral spaces with, with all these people and actually having discussions about things. I have to say no. For me, it's not. And maybe I should explain what I mean by neutral. Because this doesn't feel neutral to me. This feels like home. Mm. You're not going to say something where I'm going to find it difficult to deal with you. You're not going to put me in the position where I'm afraid or ashamed to say what I want to say. But when people are getting together to solve a problem that the community has, they may not feel comfortable saying, actually, you know, I just don't like the way you smell. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me to have been drawn out this way, it's, a, it's gestalt. It's the gestalt has been completed. And so at the same time as it's an entertaining story, not that anybody cares, but I understand myself better. <laughs> I think people do care. I think people have a kind of either an empathetic enjoyment or a sympathetic enjoyment of the quality and character of the story. Because you're telling, I mean, we all have these stories in our past, and many of us also haven't necessarily reflected much on them. And you can hear from listening to you how much you're enjoying yeah. this reflection. Right, right. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I was um, musing on the drive down here about Quakerism and I was imagining Tonio saying to me, so what was it about Quaker meeting that attracted you? And I heard myself saying to you the following. <laughs> in Quaker meeting you sit in silence. Some I have the feeling I've already told you this on one of our previous talks. I don't think so. In Quaker meeting you sit in silence and you only break the silence for the group that's sitting there in silence, if the message, the epiphany that you're having, is more valuable than the silence. So it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when I was a graduate student there in 1965, 
that I started actually attending a real Quaker meeting on a regular basis. I thought it would do me a lot of good, I said. I soon learned, and everybody who knows about Quakers knows that it's a bit of an unusual meeting because all the intellectuals who go there, it's what's called a popcorn meeting. It's not easy for uh, intellectuals to sit in silence and right. not say anything, <laughs> especially if they're connected with Harvard. Right. Right. <laughs> so the silences don't tend to be quite as long. But the main point is, oh, this is actually very helpful, that you don't reply to the person you're listening mm. to. You don't say, I've got a better one than that. Wait till you hear what happened to me. You let the silence come back. And it doesn't always follow that the next person who breaks the silence is necessarily responding to the first one. It's a very rich experience, really. And I found it very wonderful to sit there in silence for an entire hour. I said, Tomas, you're going to learn how to keep your mouth shut (laughs) for a whole hour. Mm. And what I was... Was that unusual for you? Was that a difficult thing for you? I wouldn't say it was difficult, but it was not my usual way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is what I was conversing with you about in my mind on the way down in the car. And now I'm conversing you, viva voce, with you here. Because there are people like you and me, I was saying, who simply enjoy hearing ourselves talk. <laughs> and then I was thinking some more about it, and I was thinking there's nothing wrong with that. It's not diff- necessarily wrong with that. It's only wrong if you're doing it so that nobody else can get a word in edgeways or because you want to prove that you're the top dog in the room. But in and of itself, I thought, it's not really all that different from a musician who plays a musical instrument because they enjoy the music they're making. And certainly in our conversations, you and me, I just enjoy the up and down of your voice and I enjoy the rhythms and I've often commented on this. But things took a turn for me back then in 1965, 66, when I'd been going comfortably there and sitting in silence for an hour every Sunday. I mean, I should say, nowadays, and actually for long, many times in my life, I do enjoy silence. I love to be alone and silent for eight hours. I have a friend who went to one of these Buddhist retreats where you sit in silence for ten days or whatever it is. I would love to do that. And I do know, deep inside, that silence trumps all the things you can put into words. That the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. That although it's fun to put things into words and it's great to have theories and images and imagination and so on, it doesn't amount to very much. <laughs> right. They call a hill of beans <laughs> yeah. in some circles. Or something that you would have to bleep out. So, <laughs> <laughs> But it's the shared silence, of course, that builds community. It's sharing the silence. So at that meeting place, and in most Quaker places, there were these little pamphlets. And one of them, you know, how to prepare for meeting. So I took it home, and it changed my life. Because it said... <laughs> It's not a good idea, as the week goes by, to think, oh, I'm going to talk about this at meeting. It's much better to come in, empty your mind, and just wait for the still, small voice, and just wait in patience. But it's also not a good idea to come to meeting determined not to say anything. (laughs) Because the still, small voice may be speaking to you, and perhaps you ought to stand up and testify. I, Mama, there I was, (laughs) going to every Sunday, determined not to say anything. So I wasn't yet quite getting the point, you know. I wasn't, as I would now say, or learnt in later years to say, open to the unknown. I had a rule. Interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I wasn't going with the flow. It's kind of ironic when we're young that we have a tendency to rebel against rules, but also, on the other hand, 
to be easily constrained by certain self-imposed rules. Tonya, I don't know if I'm the first person who has the nerve to point this out to you, but it isn't the case that everybody wants to rebel against rules. There are many young people who love following the rules and wouldn't dream of rebelling against them. <laughs> Someone had to mention this to you sooner or later. <laughs> I don't encounter... I, try, I, I suppose I do, but I just don't notice they, it. They because stay I think away I, from you. I think st- I just filter them out. <laughs> they filter you out. They stay away from you and they stay away from me. They can smell us a mile away. They realise this guy is trouble. Mm. He doesn't genuflect and he doesn't seem to believe in the rules. <laughs> or he does, but he treats them as... a as, the, as rules of a He's game. He's a walking riot. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but, it, but, but of course I love the rules and we all love the rules when, when it means that we're playing a good game. Then. Mm-hmm. But we don't like it when, some, when you're playing a good game and someone is such when it's a... it's oppressive. Well, when someone is a stickler for the rules and says, you broke the rule and then, then and is a spoilsport and doesn't let the game go on because it's the spirit of the game that matters. Or that they're trying to impose yes. rules of a game yes. that only they right. are playing. Yes, yes. And so by thinking, and we often get to this, and it's always one of my favorite you know, ways of thinking about these things, metaphors, the distinction between playing by the rules and nourishing the spirit of the game is for me the distinction between Puritanism and Quakerism. Hmm. I use those terms in a private sense. This is what I came across, in, what I came to feel in the 1960s. I feel that the history of community in the United States is a pendulum that goes back and forth from the Puritan point of view to the Quaker point of view. From time to time, Quakerism has been reborn, and that was in the 60s and also in the 30s and in the transcendentalist movement. And, and the earliest, earliest settlers, the white settlers, the tension between the Puritans and the Quakers, because the Quakers said, if it's in the spirit, then you're okay. If the rules are getting in the way of the spirit, then the rules are not good. And the Puritans are the ones who cannot abide that and have to make sure that you don't claim that the spirit is guiding you. A lot of history can be narrated according to that tension. What do you think? Sounds like a perfect birthplace for materialism. Materialism. A kind of mechanistic way of seeing and relating to the world. The letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law. The the letter of the rules versus the spirit of the rules, or the spirit of the game. The game becomes a rigid, becomes like a prison. The game becomes a liturgical ritual, the mass. And we do need rituals. Communities need rituals. They're well conducted if the spirit is available to come through there. Mm -hmm. And this, again, is where Quakers and, let's say, orthodox Christian church, institutionalized Christian churches, and this has to do with institutionalization. Once something is institutionalized, then the rituals are absolutely essential for survival of the institution. Because that's all there is. Well, if there's all there is, the institution becomes moribund and doesn't survive. No, there have to be infusions of charisma and energy and good people who believe in the cause and, you know, otherwise the institution just doesn't really survive. So they have to be... Well, it can, it can survive like a zombie. It can be... Yes, a, yes, but I'm thinking, of the ones, I'm thinking of the ones that are thriving. Oh, okay. You know? Well, Harvard is not a zombie. It's thriving, but it's very institutionalized. And I don't know that public education is thriving. But but it's thriving in what way? And to what degree is it thriving? And who is thriving on it? Is it the intellectuals who love the sound of their own voice and who can't stop talking? Or is there any sense of waiting for the spirit to move you? 
as well, opposed to well, to our our self satisfied notion that we know it all and that we've got all these brilliant ideas that we have to tell everybody. Well, Tonio, as we dialogue together over the years, <laughs> over the months, certain recurrent themes emerge, and this one about institutional is a one that we touched on one way or another. And perhaps we should unpack it a little bit because it's almost as if I have this odd feeling that I'm willing to defend something mm-hmm. <laughs> about institutionalized process or despite your Quaker roots because of my Quakerism. Ah. I would love to hear you unpack that together. Before we get there, this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, and. We'll take a short little musical break and allow our our esteemed guest to take a little cigarette break. No, I won't call it a cigarette break. I'll call it a few minutes of silence. Oh. And um, I wouldn't go so far as to call it prayer. We can talk about prayer when I get back. But I think having talked for an hour, which now come to think of it is how long this Quaker meeting lasts, I do like to have a moment of total silence so that I don't just blather on. Should we allow our listeners silence Well, I've always assumed well? that it's not allowed to have three minutes of silence on the radio. I've been told that that's a no-no, even I... worse than a cuss word. <laughs> it could be. I... It's called dead time. I will go and have my meeting uh, with my spiritual uh, retreat, uh, my, my sacrament, and I will light a cigarette while I do it. And when I come back, I'll tell you a story about lighting a cigarette as a sacrament. <laughs> Okay, and we'll be back after this.
And we're back with Tomas Kalmar. Did me a lot of good, actually, to turn all the engines off and just idle for a second. And I don't think it's unfair to say that if you practice Quakerism, you do learn to take little mini moments. And it reminds me of the story I love to tell about from the 1960s when there was a gathering of 13 gurus in San Francisco up on the stage. And there was a rabbi so-and-so, and there was Swami so-and-so, and there was some Japanese Buddhist and every kind of guru. And the audience could put questions from the floor. And one of them put a question to Agehananda Swami Swamanswa. And the question was, I have managed to uh, achieve union with the abyss of the Godhead when I'm all alone on the beach. But how on earth do I do it? Is it possible to do it when you're crossing the street at the corner of Market and such and such and the traffic lights change? Can you achieve union with the abyss of the Godhead there? And the guru thought and said, is possible. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy said, but how do you do it? And the guru thought for a while and then said, you just do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I went outside and I just did it. And I got the little epiphany that I needed or something, a sense of why we're talking about all of this. Now, was there a question hanging in the air which I said I would reply to or respond to when I got back? You said you were going to tell a story using a cigarette break as a sacrament. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a short one. You know, I'd be smoking a cigarette because I use them to punctuate my life. I'm down to three a day. I don't need to do it as much as I used to. It had to do, as it turns out, with PTSD and actually a fair amount to do with arriving in Australia at six years old. And I used them to cross borders when I was about to go into a committee meeting or when I had just left a committee meeting. When I had to behave in a certain way and had to put on a certain mask to get through the next thing or when I could take off the mask. And, of course, these very liberal friends, my colleagues, would take pot shots at me. They would say... Smoking isn't good for you. It's bad for your health. To which I first had the witty response, committee meetings are bad for your health, and you're addicted to those. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good, but it got better when I said to them, show some respect for my religion. This is a sacramental act. Now, a sacrament, a sacrament is an outward sign of inward grace. I quite consciously and deliberately made... I didn't start smoking until I was 34 years old. And I won't tell the story now. Maybe you'll draw me out someday. But it had to do with institutionalizing a sacrament in my life to mark something. Anyway, I now want to talk to you about institutions. <laughs> okay? It's not an abrupt break because they're kind of connected. When I was young, it took me a long time to understand what an institution means, what it means to institutionalize something. When I was young, I thought an institution was an ugly big brick building inside which people had to walk in certain ways and behave in certain ways and everything was regimented and nothing was free and everybody had to be the same and it was all rules, rules, you know, to punish people or to... It was a mental hospital or a... That was an institution. They'll send you to an institution, meant you were, you know, you'd misbehaved and they want to straighten you out. But then I grew up and started to realise that, no, sociologists and people who think about these things deeply, the word actually, the concept, it actually goes much, much deeper than that. And so, Tony... Modestia aparte, as we say, putting modesty aside, I made a pretty deep study of a lot of institutions as I tried to understand this. And I ranged them on a spectrum. At one extreme, 
is the Roman Catholic Church. I've spent a lot of time studying the entire history of the Roman Catholic Church, and it is an institution, and a very interesting one since it's been around for so long, and documented and so on, and so many twists and turns, and you never know end to the explorations you can make as to what was really going on and what sort of a thing it is. But at the other extreme is something like tic-tac-toe, <laughs> a game. Tic-tac-toe is an institution may not be clear at first, but chess is a good example. And I've also spent a lot of time studying chess as if it was, comparing the community of chess players to the Roman Catholic Church, for example. Because every institution, according to Kalmar, has something in common with the Roman Catholic Church. Some have this in common, some have that in common. And in chess, you voluntarily submit to these pretty, you know, unbreakable rules so that you can once again commune with anyone who has ever played chess and anyone who ever will play chess. Simply by playing chess, you're entering that institution. Now, there are some chess players who have studied, you know, the fathers and who have developed principles and rules. And there are times when there's a reformation going on. Nimzovich, not that I ever understood Nimzovich, but Nimzovich had a system called hypermodern chess. All that had to do with who controls the center. Well, yes, the controlling the center, okay. But you can control the center by not getting into it, by tricking the other, and so on. So I wondered if people who were playing chess, according to Nimzovich, were playing a subset of what sort of thing it was. So I think we got to this point where I was saying that not all institutions are necessarily zombie-like places. Or oppressive. Or oppressive. I think there are natural laws that govern the life cycle of a community. It's born, it goes through certain developments and changes, and in the end it dies. And is no more. But possibly, if one wants to tell the history of an institution, there's probably only three or four plots that you can come up with, really. It got off to a good start and had, you know, a vision, and then it lost its vision. <laughs> or... It was nefarious from the start. It was meant to be the mafia. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the mafia had good intentions at the start. Uh, you, you know, different, different institutions have different stories. Well, they all have good intentions from their own point of view. Well, yeah, but least. some were noble and were going to, you know, on the side of the poor and the oppressed, and others were not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Obviously. So what's the aim of all of this? Oh, can you have a society with no institutions? I don't suppose one can. It's like having a community that never plays games. But in a good society, a healthy society, when two people get married, which I think is mundial, it's, it's universal. Every culture has some sort of ritual to do something around a sacrament to make this august thing. And so there are always rituals when two people get married, and they are basically meant to bring two families together, two clans together. Everyone connected with one side and everyone connected with the other are now somehow going to be brought together into one relationship, more or less. And so you go to weddings, and some of them, I suppose, are, uh, I don't know, are there ever boring weddings? I mean, every wedding I've been to is that, you know, the spirit was there. Though sometimes, perhaps, I guess, you might wonder, why are these two people getting married? How long will it last? Maybe you wonder that at every wedding, depending who you are. <laughs> or maybe you never think that because you think it's going to last. Cause it's... But anyway... If I have a point, and I suppose there is a bit of a point here, it's a, a good wedding. Everything is there to liberate the spirit, to give the spirit a space, mm. a safe space mm -hmm. in which... A container. A container, not so much to contain it 
I like your notion that it, it's a safe place for the spirit to emerge. Yes, and, and contain can mean to prevent it from getting out. Right. But it's also to protect it yes. from... Yes. When you're in the middle of that space celebrating a fiesta... Ah, yes. It is not a time to ask yourself, did I forget to pay that bill? It's not a time to bring up all sorts of things are no longer relevant. It is time out from the secular life. Yes, this reminds me of an example that I have in my life of enjoying a ritual, using a ritual, and really experiencing the spirit in it. And this was in a spiritual community that I became a part of many, many, many years ago, which in many ways I can relate to many things you said. Right, because we shared that kind of experience in our past, yeah. Including Quakerism and silence and... And communal uh, gatherings. Communal gatherings, all that. So one of the practices, one of the rituals was this monthly ritual called the temple. And just the notion of the temple made me bristle inside. I was... When I first heard of it, I was like, what the hell is this? Temple? It sounded oppressive to me. <laughs> but I did it, and in the experience of it, I found it very rich, very deep, very rich with silence. And it was all contained by the ritual of it, the institutional practice of it that was very regimented, very well contained, but once you accepted those ritualistic containments, you could be totally free to enter into the infinity of the spirit of it. And that's all I need to say. Thank you so much. Yes. And so you enter into this space voluntarily with the other people who enter into it voluntarily. If someone is there because they don't want to be there, then they're like the wicked godmother in the fairy tales who puts a curse instead of a blessing. Mm. But that's why we play games. Because we voluntarily sit at the chessboard and we're going to take time out from all those secular concerns. And so that has always helped me. If I join an institution, be it Goddard or even Harvard or whatever, to me... I'm saying, okay, let's play this game. Let's have fun playing this game. And then when I find out that somebody says we're having altogether too much fun here, I know that the Puritans are in town, especially with math. If my math classes or groups are having fun, there's always going to be people who say they're having a lot of fun. When are they going to learn math? And that could well be with any killjoys in any institution. So every movement, spiritual movement, my particular interest in the Roman Catholic Church. I have many interests, but my biggest interest is what happened at Vatican II. Vatican II was very important to me, and it's hard for me to understand that most people don't know about Vatican II anymore. Such very, very interesting things happened at Vatican II, because John Twenty-Third said, it's time to renew everything. Let the Spirit back in. Open the windows and let fresh air in. And so all of these wonderful things were being liberated. And one, for example, we don't have to keep talking in Latin, which nobody understands. You can talk a language which everybody understands. Duh! (laughs) Anyway, about institutions, I think with your help I've articulated something about really most of my work. Because in one way or another, everything I've done has had some connection with this. And it is to abide by the rules and yet be responsive to the Spirit. And good things happen. 
Now, the joke is one I heard in the days when I was an active Christian in Australia. I think I might have mentioned to you that I was going to write my autobiography under the title My Year as a Christian. Have I ever mentioned this to you? I don't well, think next so. time I come, get me to talk about My Year as a Christian. Okay. The title My Year as a Christian comes from my last day. I'm going to just tell a few stories at the end. It comes from my last days at Cal State University, Monterey Bay. I'd been there for four years, helped it get started, and I was moving on. And the students knew I was leaving, and one of them came up to me and said, he was from the student newspaper, and he said, if your life was a book, what would be the title? And without skipping a beat, I said, my year as a Christian. <laughs> now, that came to me because I had a friend in Australia in 1973 who once said to me, um, oh, monogamy, yeah, I, I was into monogamy for a while. I said, oh, yeah, well, what do you think of it? He said, oh, I found it very interesting. And I said, um, how long were you monogamous? Oh, he said, about a year. <laughs> <laughs> so during my year as a Christian in Australia, I was organising these Christian Marxist dialogues and liberation theology. I hung out with Christians of all sorts. I've always been interested in all kinds of Christianity and so on, and especially with these radical Catholics who were implementing justice and peace and were liberated finally by Rome, the Vatican, not only liberated, ordered to do this ecumenical stuff where you meet with other Christians and with Marxists. And at one of these retreats, Someone told me the following story, which you can only tell in certain settings. A Dominican and a Jesuit are at a retreat. Now, we're talking about a real retreat because, you know, when the Catholics have their retreats, you know, those are spiritual things. And they're strolling along in the woods, and the Jesuit pulls out a cigarette. And the Dominican looks at him and says, are we allowed to smoke? So they discuss it a bit from a theological point of view, and they agree they will consult their spiritual advisors. The next day... They stroll along again, and the Jesuit pulls out a cigarette. And the Dominican says, did your advisor say you're allowed to smoke? He said, yeah. Mine said no. And to get the joke, you have to understand about the difference between Dominicans and Jesuits as orders. And so the Jesuit says, well, what did you ask him? Oh, says the Dominican. I said, is it okay to smoke while I pray? Oh, says the Jesuit. I asked mine, is it okay to pray while I smoke? <laughs> <laughs> Now, I love that story, and it's a great story for today's conversation. No matter where you go, whatever, it's always okay to be open to the abyss of the unknown. <laughs> but I guess it's worth reminding us all, you folks out there listening, and my friend here, Tonio, that the thing about Quakers as an institution is that it is stripped down to beyond the bare minimum. There is no rituals. There are no rituals. You go on a Sunday to a Christian church of another sort, and there's somebody up there doing the hocus-pocus, some priest. No priests. Everyone is a, the priesthood of all believers, as Luther called it. Everyone is a friend of God. And there's no dogma. It's not like you have to believe this or else you're a heretic. You consult inside and to the community, too. I mean, as you may know, a, a meeting, which is to say a community, a local community, say in Plainfield, can only take action if there's unanimous agreement. You don't vote. So at a business meeting, when you're trying to decide somebody's left us $5,000, what will we do with the $5,000? Everyone has to agree. And that's a very interesting process, because if someone says, no, my conscience does not let me agree with this, you don't say, well, we overrule you. You talk and dialogue with that person, and, and sometimes they'll persuade you. I mean, the most extreme case I can think of was in Sydney, Australia. This was in the early 70s. These two Irish working-class lesbians wanted to get married at uh, our meeting. <laughs> this was for early days, I'm telling you, early days. And not everybody who was a member of that meeting felt their conscience, you know, was clear on that. I, if I remember right, they did get married. So there we are. 
Right, I did manage to bring in both the WEA, which is, doesn't seem like it's this sort of thing, and Quakers, and how throughout history in all, I hope, in all societies, maybe I'm a, being a bit Pollyanna here, there's always been places and times when groups of people could get together in a safe space and engage in each other's lives and discuss things in the way that we were talking about and learn. I call it friends teaching friends. And you tell your own stories. You share your own stories. Yes, and you nourish a space where it's okay to be who you are and say, this is Goddard I'm talking about, of course, to be who you are and say what you mean and mean what you say and do what you say and, and, you know, become integrated. Exactly. It's like, it's the practice of what I imagine all traditions do, but Buddhists delineate it very clearly as, you know, right speech and right action, which essentially is not that they are right as opposed to wrong, but they are true to who you are. You're speaking your truth in alignment with who you are. You're not being deceptive with yourself to begin with, and they're on being deceptive with everybody else, but everything you. you say and do is in alignment with, with who you are. Thank you so much. I've pondered deeply all the different varieties of religious experience within Christianity, and to the small extent that I can in Islam and even a little bit in Judaism. But I've stayed away from trying to understand Buddhism, and yet so many of my friends are Buddhists, to put it bluntly. And so when I hear something like this, I think, yeah, that's probably, I, I believe that, yeah, I can say that. What I don't understand yet about Buddhism is the, because I've never looked into it, is this communal aspect, how things get communal, the institutionalizations of Buddhism, because of course I know throughout Buddhism and throughout all those Indian religions and so on, there are various schools, I mean, different divisions and so on. But anyway, yes, <laughs> yes. I was just reading once again this thing about Thomas Aquinas, whom, as you probably know, was, you know, the biggest brain of the Catholic Church in the 13th century. I mean, he had an answer for everything, and he wrote the final dogmas of everything. That didn't really end until Vatican II in the 1960s. Now you don't have to follow his way, you know. And about six weeks before he died, he had a vision that everything he had written was like just sand, meaningless sand, in front of the ocean to which he was, you know, now... How wonderful. (laughs) For you and me, yes. Well, for him too. Yes, but what I was reading was that maybe he was burnt out. <laughs> really? Maybe he had tried too hard for too many years and he just couldn't keep it up anymore. <laughs> well, I, I have a different take on I that. I do too. That's why you and me are sitting here. <laughs> I think in terms of how many people on their deathbed all of a sudden have this kind of like an opening type of realization yes. that everything they've done in their life was founded on misconceptions of yes. just totally misunderstanding yes. the yes. nature of everything right. and that right. is only in that last moment when yes. we're about to die right. that the spirit right the the great abyss right. reveals itself right. and it reveals itself to be not anything right anything at all right absolutely <laughs> and and you you know we, we can tell that at the at the person's death but it can also happen in the life stories of people in the middle of their life oh, absolutely. Or at any moment that sort yes. of thing can and that's what yes. william james talks about it, mm-hmm. a mystical experience that hits mm-hmm. you but I, I think one of the things that draws me to quakerism is the simplicity you can also have small epiphanies they don't have to be always cosmic they can pile up little by little a tiny little one while you're frying your eggs or whatever they're also of deep spiritual value and the wonderful vehicle of silence ah yes so i think quakerism does have a ritual and the ritual yes, it does. is silence. Yes, exactly. It's a structure. It's the structure of silence. That's right. And, and having it meet in a certain place. So I'll end by saying there's a lot to be said for silence. <laughs> yes. 
That could be the title of this one. <laughs> so, Tomas Kalmar, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank and you, Tonya. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening out there. Yes. Thank you all. And until next time, have a wonderful week.